Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Each week, we will take you inside the brightest minds of the most highly regarded executives in the world of enterprise-level revenue operations, marketing, and sales with a focus on the future while creating successful wins today. Now, here's your host, Justin Michael. Welcome back to Vendor Neutrals in the Neutral Zone, Quantum Leap. I'm Justin Michael, and I am your host. I'm joined by David Bowders, who is the CEO of Sparks IQ. Welcome, David. I'm glad to be here today, Justin. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you. I think you're someone that really understands technology enablement and the future of where the enterprise is going. I know you're very humble about that. But yeah, I'd love to just kick it off with what Sparks IQ and what inspired you to create that uh, around these themes. Uh, so Sparks IQ is really two types of company that fuse together, converge together into sales effectiveness, profitability, acceleration, topics like that. So at our core, we're an analytics company. We uh, master complex transactional analytics to help sales teams sell more, to help uh, pricing teams to maximize or optimize pricing performance. We also help to uh, measure and drive increased profitability at the net profit level for sales teams with the analytics that help them understand uh, how, how and where they create or destroy profitability in their business. And then we also help companies to uh, basically to target new business that will be disproportionately profitable and sticky and to uh, grow a share of wallet with their existing customers. So that's the analytics side of our business. Then we have a sales effectiveness, talent selection and development side of our business, which is really focused on the skills and the people side of all those opportunities that I talked about. So we provide uh, Netflix style sales training, short form video uh, produced using Hollywood techniques that's buyer centric, uh, that is uh, available on demand and helps the, the modern seller to meet the modern buyer uh, with the skill set, the competencies they need to be successful. We also have uh, talent analytics to help uh, sales teams make sure that they have the best people in the right seats on the bus and that they're able to predictably outperform other sales teams in the marketplace. Uh, so those are kind of the core offerings that we have and uh, there's a lot more to it than that. It's basically the, uh, the analytics and the skills uh, and, and talent uh, resources to help companies sell more, make more money and to uh, outperform the competition. I love that conceptually because it takes us to these interesting conversations, right? One of the things um, we've been chatting about is the concept of money ball for sales. And people are familiar with the book, um, whether you look at it as like a 23andMe for sales, like the DNA of the seller, um, providing tests for salespeople. Um, you know, you've kind of highlighted some of these approaches. You said the Netflix for sellers or a virtual gym. Can you take us into this conceptually? Um, you know, how would folks listening do this? <laughs> so the best way of understanding it, I, I like the idea of Moneyball for sales because it implies that there are certain measurable attributes of performance, even uh, measurable attributes of seller DNA that can predictably produce uh, outperforming teams in the marketplace. And that is, uh, we have assessments that really, we, in our product, we call it talent GPS. It really is how do we identify the hardwiring traits of sales reps, depending on the role that they're in, the industry that they're in, 
that show statistically they will outperform if trained and managed effectively, coached effectively, they will outperform other sellers in the marketplace. So just like sports teams uh, leverage advanced analytics when they draft players, when they spot uh, free agency opportunities in the marketplace, being able to master the analytics of who will outperform and why, and to have, uh, we have a database of over 2 million uh, sales reps who've taken the instrument we're able to correlate what are the, uh, the belief systems, the attitudes, the hard wiring of sales reps. And then the other side of it is what competencies do they have that they've learned. So some of it is innate and some of it is really about uh, how have they been trained, how effectively have they applied certain competencies in the marketplace, how have they mastered them. And so we can assess both the, the innate part of it as well as the learned part of it. But it's critical. If you think about sports, there's no sports team today that's that's trying to make important decisions about talent without using analytics and usually hiring in data scientists and people like that to help them make sense of the complexities of the world they're trying to understand. So that's really what we're doing for the sales field is, is helping people make uh, smart bets that outproduce in terms of ROI. I love that explanation. I'm a big fan of the, of the movie and the theory. And I think you get gifted humans and you put them in the right positions on a team and you design the system in a new way. A lot in sales has been the same for 20 years, the exact acronym, the exact descriptions. And I think there's a lot of um, variation that's possible to improve the supply chain, to break the supply chain out of the silos. Um, we've talked about the new learning paradigm for modern sellers to serve modern buyers. Curious, like what are some of the core skills, competencies, uh, behaviors that help modern sellers to support a modern buyer? Well, the, the North Star for all of this is buyer centricity. So the, the, the rule is that sellers don't sell more because they try to sell more. Sellers sell more because buyers buy more. And so in order to, to meet the modern buyer in a modern way, we have to understand who the buyer is, who the personas are, what their buying processes are, and then align our sales process and thus our sales competencies to that buyer's buying process. So the question is, can we articulate what the business value to a buyer is of working with our company? How do our capabilities support a better business outcome, which is business acumen, if you think about it at a very basic level? Do our sellers really understand the businesses, the business models of the various customers they serve? And if they don't understand that, then they're predictably not going to be able to identify why a customer should buy from them. How, how, why is it important to buy now? Why is it important to buy from them specifically? And so that's just uh, one example, but modern sellers need to meet the modern buyer where they are. And, and those are the things that Gartner and Forrester are revealing over and over again now. Buyers are frustrated because sellers don't really understand the business that the buyer is in. And therefore, they can't connect to the value and the change in business outcomes to create a compelling reason to buy. And that's why there's so many no decisions today. That's why there's so many stalled deals, uh, stalled pipeline is because there is no compelling business reason for change. Yeah, so there's something really interesting going on. People talk about the short attention span of the human. The brain is 40,000 years old by science in this iteration, that hasn't changed. So the brain has not changed from Abe Lincoln in the log cabin till now. Now there is video advertising. So it's advantageous to all the platforms to serve ads very quickly, there's 250 notifications a day. And the minute you read one thing, you're pinging to the next, you know, like a, you just come a hummingbird or a pigeon. 
but you talk about the Netflix model. We, we know that millennials, Gen Z, I mean, they're, they're binge watching these shows like Queen's Gambit. And so you've created this for sales. How do we do behavioral cha change, dynamic, static? Like how do we train people and get uh, skill-based training, retention and behavioral change in this modern world where there's so many distractions. I mean, I'm sure you could talk about this subject for two hours, <laughs> maybe two days. Well, you know, just in a concise way, what I'd say is we've gotten spoiled as consumers, right? Every time we go on our Apple TV or whatever platform we use, we're exposed to a whole new uh, set of channels and streams that are out there that engage us, that entertain us, that inform us. And in the world of uh, consumer entertainment and consumer, let's just say, uh, uh, production content, we're spoiled. The diversity of options is amazing. The production values are high. Even on YouTube, the production values are extremely high, self-produced content in many cases. What's happened in the, in the corporate training world as we discovered during COVID is there's a major gap between what people experience in their consumer life and what they experience in uh, their corporate uh, sales training world. So the historical model would be you go to a hotel or a conference room, you have a death by PowerPoint presentation, which uh, goes in one ear and out the other ear. Usually by the time you're on the ride home, you will have forgotten 90% of what went in the ear in the first place. It's non-retentive as they say. So. Uh, Basically, there's that issue. We also have learned during the pandemic that people have Zoom fatigue. So uh, people are on a carnival ride of, of Zoom meetings hour after hour, day after day. They can't ask them to show up for yet another four hour Zoom meeting for their sales training. So what we're discovering is between the forgetting curve and the, uh, the new modern consumer models for what we consume, people want shorter form, more impactful, easy on-demand access, and they want it to have the same engagement value as they find on social or they find in uh, Netflix and other platforms. So the question is, why can't sales training have those things? And the reason is it's you can, but it's really hard. You have to first focus on topics that matter, that if mastered will actually move the economic needle. Sadly, most sales training is just in case and not uh, there's no economic imperative for somebody to learn that. The salespeople are rightly asking, why should I interrupt my day selling to learn things where I can't make any clear connection to how I'm going to be better as a salesperson? So it starts with start selecting content that matters. If mastered, will produce a different outcome. The second is you have to build rigorous instructional design behind it. Just because you know what the, that competency is does not mean that you will be able to teach it to people successfully. So instructional design is one of those, those layers of sales training that's often neglected. People think if you just show up with the ideas, you tell people the ideas, that they'll learn the ideas. Nothing could be further from the truth. So rigorous instructional design, having a true domain expert, but that's typically where even the best sales training stops. It stops with we designed the course, we're gonna test you on it, we're going to help you to, uh, to make sure that you can answer quiz questions. And then we're gonna hope and pray that when you leave that training session, you're gonna go out into your job and apply some of what you learned. And we know that that's really not true. Just because I answered all the questions on the, question, on the test correctly does not mean I'm going to start doing those things when I go on my next sales call. So, it has to be retentive by design. There have to be exercises that, that create active learning. We have to design for the downstream activities, the coaching, the um, sales management 
that will predictably make sure that salespeople have not only mastered the content, but they're applying it in their jobs. And that ultimately we can see the line between, um, between what they were taught and how they behave when nobody's watching them. And, and the magic is if we can create content that is binge-worthy, that is people naturally consume it faster than we ask them to, we can truly create a, a lifelong learning uh, approach for salespeople. The problem is historically it has not been binge-worthy, it's been cringe-worthy. It was worthy of, of people not wanting to do the work, not wanting to complete their assignments, not wanting to, to master it, all of those characteristics. So we think Hollywood can teach us a lot about how to create engagement. And so we've really uh, obsessed about what does it feel like to be in one of our training courses? Can it feel as rich and immersive as your favorite uh, streaming shows. And that's where we push for that extra mile to make sure that anytime somebody watches some of our training, they're not only learning something important, but they're, they're having such a good experience doing it that they wanna learn more. And the more you know, the more you make. At the end of the day, it's a, uh, this is a human capital economy that we live in. And if you're not investing in your own development, you're not gonna be as valuable in the marketplace. You may even become obsolete. Very well put. I, I really like, uh, you know, going from cringeworthy to binge-worthy. That's a good slogan. You had many <laughs> good slogans in there. Um, we want to talk about crowdsourcing knowledge. It's crazy because it's these MOOCs, these massive online courses that didn't really do that well. And maybe you can comment on why. The crowdsourcing of knowledge, peer-to-peer uh, -peer learning at scale, ways to adapt and amplify the learnings that come from a curriculum that you've developed. And uh, it sounds like you're doing a lot with crowdsourcing, Hollywood-level content like the quality of that content, how it's ingested, gets people to want to uh, work with you. And there's tech factors going into how you built this. I just want to dig a little deeper into the crowdsource knowledge piece. Yeah, so maybe it'll be helpful to clarify what do we mean by crowdsourcing? What we mean by crowdsourcing is the old model of, let's say, sales training was you had a sales training department. You may have had some former sales leaders, sales, uh, successful salespeople. Their job was to try to figure out what is the content, what are the competencies that will help a salesperson to be successful. And so that process, because it was hierarchical, it started with, with the, the person at the top trying to figure out all the needs, the diverse needs of different salespeople was intrinsically limited. Uh, a single person can only produce so much content per 24 hour period or per 52 week period. And so the, the great insight of crowdsourcing from a content perspective is that if most content consumers are also content producers, then one of the key constraints on, on content production starts to go away. So you can compare, for example, the amount of content on YouTube to the amount of content that's on Netflix. And even though they're very different types of content, we all know that YouTube, broadly speaking, has never produced content because they have facilitated the production of content, they are in many ways a superior source of content, not necessarily always in quality, but in relevance and authenticity and several other dimensions. Crowdsourcing of content is a, a superior approach to developing very broad and adaptive types of uh, training for people. The sales team is always gonna know more about how to adapt the training that's provided to them than the, the training department. And so the real question is, how do we get the, the salespeople with all their intimate knowledge, their high, re high resolution view of the marketplace to share those insights peer to peer so that um, one person's knowledge isn't stuck in their head, it gets shared across the enterprise. So that's the big 
the big amplification effect that we see from the crowdsourcing of knowledge. I think of some like really ancient axioms like those who can't do teach. And you have almost this strange paradigm where folks that haven't been in the field and done selling for 20 years are kind of in the ivory tower teaching selling. However, I've come to believe that it's a combination of both an art and a science. There are a lot of philosophies. There, there's work coming out of analysts and pundits and scholars that are, it's actually really exciting um, to read it if you're a doer and a practitioner in a trench and you read about it and you apply it. I mean, it gives good, it's a good mirror. So I've actually, I've, I've kind of utilized it all and I find it all to be really exciting. Um, some folks, they just can't, they don't like to read a lot or they want to do audibles or they want to watch. And so there's like different learning styles, I feel. And there's like nine levels of intelligence. You know, like some people are kinesthetic and some people are, you know, visual or auditory. So, you know, as a, as a person creating content that's going to stick and create behavioral change, the reason I ask you this is many people listening have an enablement team. They're trying to do e-learning and remote. They're trying to look at platforms like, you know, Sparks IQ. So, um, what are some of the secrets you've found to kind of enable them to, to train teams, to train different generations? Like it's just, you're a font of knowledge on the subject. Uh, it's, a, it's a tricky topic because um, in some ways you can't please everybody. And so, for example, one of the things we've learned is that comedy can be a very effective way, a very effective device for helping people to uh, relax when, they're, when their minds are more relaxed and more receptive to learning. However, comedy uh, is a very uh, hit or miss approach to, to, let's say, creating engaging content because what one person finds hilarious, another person finds absurd or ridiculous. And so, uh, for example, drama versus comedy is generally a safer bet. You're going to be able to connect with more people. But still, as you, as you mentioned, there are very different learning styles. There's very different uh, cognitive hardwiring that we all bring to, to uh, the table. So you can't necessarily please everybody. What you're trying to do is please the greatest number of people you can. So you have to have a certain amount of versatility in the content. It has to appeal to, uh, let's say, a known uh, range of, of learning, uh, uh, learning orientations, if you will. Uh, but it, it, it's some, some of the hardest magic to master in content production is really making it binge-worthy to whom. And uh, when you know something is working well, it's when the vast majority, 80, 90, almost 100% of people are still, regardless of whether exactly clicking with it, they're still consuming it faster than you ask them to. The great devil for sales enablement is, is we identify what we think the competencies are but we struggle in our time pressured world, our distracted world to get salespeople to, uh, to complete the training or to master the training, continuously engage with the training that we provide. So a big part of it is, um, can you provide something that's quick, easy, impactful, and frankly enjoyable, something people look forward to turning off soon and watching this short video of 15 minutes, 18 minutes that will make them a better seller. So it's, there's no quick or easy answers. It's a, it's a learning curve problem. It takes you 10,000 hours of, of trying to create content, making mistakes and coming back swinging uh, to be able yeah. So this is an exciting episode because we did our prep. And so, you know, I, I know a lot more about you than a lot of guests that I start with, but it's exciting um, talking to a CEO who's created something from nothing, an entrepreneur. Um, and what advice do you have for revenue leaders um, either for the times, these times will end, but really in the 2020s, because the show Quantum Leap is about the future of tech 
And the problem is we start thinking of Elon Musk or the you know, singularity and it's just, it's too pie in the sky. It's so far out there, like a hoverboard. You know, what are the practical ways that we can embrace technology shifts these next two years that you're looking at as a CEO of a company, whether it's the kind of people you're hiring, um, the onboarding you're doing, the tech platforms that you're either purchasing or consolidating. Um, I'm just advising a lot of the revenue leaders listening to the podcast on how to do this more effectively, how you're navigating tumultuous times. Yeah, I think you know the most important thing to understand is that buyers are changing, and we know that buyers are changing. They have uh, there's more self-service by buyers. They do more and more of their research, more more and more of their alternative shopping before they even talk to a seller. And so when they engage so late in the buying process, the types of conversations they want to have are different today than they were 24 months ago. For example, COVID has radically shifted uh, the, the, the marketplace from being face-to-face -to, -face to being uh, virtual. So uh, a lot of the, the transformations that were already underway, of course, got compressed during COVID. They're unlikely to backslide to the old ways of doing things, the, the genies out of the bottle, if you will. So the real question today is, what does the buyer expect of our sellers today that they didn't expect 12 months or 24 months ago? And how do we find that out? How do we do the persona research? How do we find the, the buyer grounded uh, North Star that helps us to identify what are the competencies our sales team must master if they are to connect with the buyer, serve the buyer in the ways that they've changed and to make, uh, to be able to, to have an unfair position in the marketplace. Um, so there's a lot of technical questions that go with that. Um, you know, not only do you have uh, the right uh, training platform for people to not only ingest content, but also to become producers of content. So we have a platform called Empower, which is uh, developed in partnership with Alego whose purpose it is to help uh, create that YouTube type of experience where every seller can become a producer of a a producer of short form videos that help to uh, disseminate knowledge across the organization, enable, accelerate peer-to-peer -peer learning and to, uh, to provide that. So there's a deep technology involved in that. How do you effectively create video? How do you effectively coach to video? How do you effectively uh, prescriptively feed that content through channels to your sales team. So that's kind of a technical question, but it starts with the orientation that the crowd knows a lot. There's also the danger, which I didn't talk about earlier, of the blind leading the blind. So crowdsourcing is a very powerful force, but unchecked, it can create a lot of, uh, or let's say unguided or unmanaged, some terrible sales practices could go viral. So you can imagine uh, certain, certain types of uh, training that are not terribly buyer-centric, that are um, selfish and uh, let's say old school. If you unleash a crowd of people to start telling you what works in their opinion in the marketplace and you don't have any take on what is your sales process? What are the sales competencies that we need to show? What are the things, the way we do things here? Then the, the crowd can lead you in a bad direction. So it's a powerful force, but it needs, uh, you need to have a take on where does this all lead to? And you probably need somebody who helps to moderate uh, that content so that it uh, doesn't take you down a bunch of rat holes that aren't uh, conducive to, to revenue growth. Very fascinating. What do you think of RevOps? This is this huge new word that people are hearing about revenue operations. We've had sales ops, marketing operations, data operations. 
you know, ROPs, SOPs, MOPs, people are calling, you know, and it's like this whole esoteric thing that no one knows about. But basically what's happened is you've got so many tech stacks, that there has to be a person that's like whole job is to make, make the tech stacks talk and figure out the reporting. It's just, it's too complicated. Deal with all the vendors, evaluate all the vendors. There's like a whole division now. How do you deal with this internally? I would say you're high TQ CEO. You're probably closer to this stuff than, than many. Um, how do you how do you deal with revenue operations? Have you carved it off as a different division, or is it kind of baked into what people are already doing? Well, I think that the most important thing to understand about revenue ops is basically that it's a bigger idea, it's a bigger system, let's say, than than sales ops. So when we think about revenue ops, we're thinking farther upstream into the uh, where does demand gen come from? How do we uh, accelerate demand gen? Are we thinking downstream from sales into uh, into the life cycle of the customer, things like that. What, what happens with the customer after they say yes? And so uh, it, it's really just an expansion of the definition of the system. It's uh, obviously as, as you make something bigger and more complex, it becomes harder for a single individual to master. It also becomes harder for teams to master. So um, I think it's really just an evolution of, um, of our understanding of the marketplace and how buyers buy and how we need to meet them where they are to get them the things they need to buy. Um, in terms of our own company, we have uh, actually integrated that uh, activity so that we have a single individual whose job it is to understand the full, uh, the full life cycle, if you will, of revenue operations. So um, we're probably lucky in the sense that uh, we have marketplaces that are relatively homogeneous that we serve where we can apply you know, more or less a single template to how to do that. But uh, I think for every company, you may or may not decide to centralize it, but you need to have a holistic view of, of where revenue comes from if you don't wanna leave the sales team high and dry, uh, just focusing on, on conversions. Just a couple of minutes left here. What, what inspires you? Like, where do you really go for insight? You mentioned like Gardner Forrester, the analyst layer, but uh, where's innovation? coming for you, like uh, books, blogs, uh, people, I mean, any sources that you can point people at that are inspiring you in, in these realms? Well, I, I spend a lot of time in business. So frankly, I don't get a lot of inspiration from business because it's, uh, you know, I'm around it all the time. There, there is a lot of good innovative thinking going on in business, but I find some of the most important insights come from outside of business. So in the arts, for example, uh, even in symphonic music, for example, how is our uh, symphonies around the United States dealing with COVID and how are they adapting their business models to, uh, to be, uh, let's say, more relevant and, and successful in these times. I look to sports, I look to uh, fields where there is a fairly ruthless competition for success, where it's a winner take all type of situation. Uh, a lot of what you, you need to learn about uh, improving and innovating in business needs to happen outside of the business space because the business space is, is very predictable. It's very uh, intense. It's sort of like in, in certain sports, there is a cycle of how we play the game. And over time, that cycle kind of uh, exhausts itself and then a new one comes along. But if you want to spot where that new one's going to come from, you sometimes have to look outside of your sport. So now in football, for example, you're seeing quarterbacks who play more like basketball players <laughs> and you see uh you know this has been observed over and over again with Mahomes. he's a, a basketball player who went into football and as you look around these domains a lot of times the most interesting insights come from outside the domain and so if you're not paying attention 
not curious about what's working, what's not working in other fields, you're probably you know below where you need to be in terms of innovation. That's a great place. Uh, that's a quantum leap moment right there. Love that insight. Um, you know, look outside the silo, look outside your industry, look outside of business whatsoever. Inspiration in all forms. Um, well, David Bowders, uh, very excited to uh, interview you. I'd love to have you back on the show. Really excited about what you're doing as the CEO of Sparks IQ. And um, any websites or blogs or places you want to point the listeners? Uh, the easiest place to find us is our website, sparksiq.com. You can find me, David Bowders, on LinkedIn, B-A-U-D-E-R-S. And uh, glad to be here today. I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Be sure to visit VendorNeutral.com, where you can access the show notes, discover many valuable free resources, and subscribe to the podcast.